Wow. Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to keep working our way through this gospel. Matthew chapter 12. We come to a um, sober passage this morning, a provoking passage this morning. Uh, some people refer to what we're studying today as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the eternal sin. Uh, so we have a lot to look at. Matthew chapter 12, I've entitled this sermon, Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit, uh, which is easy to find online, which is why I use that one in case people want to look it up later. But alternatively, if I wasn't as interested in that, I might title it The Point of No Return. In the Broadway musical, The Fame of the Opera, there's a song with that title, The Point of No Return. And it focuses on the phantom's seduction of a young woman, Christine. And the climax of the song has the two of them come together in this duet where they, they sing these lines. Past the point of no return, the final threshold, the bridge is crossed. So stand and watch it burn. We have passed the point of no return. In their love affair, they had traversed that final threshold. They had crossed the bridge and they would burn it down. They'd passed the point of no return. And in our passage today, Jesus warns us of something similar. The religious leaders in his day, their rejection of Jesus had reached a fevered pitch. Their resolve and their repudiation of Jesus, their decisiveness and their denial of him. And so Jesus warns them, and through them he warns us in the strongest of terms and in the starkest of words about a sin that he will never forgive. Not that he cannot forgive it, but he will not forgive it. He will forgive every other sin, he assures us, but not this one. Committing it crosses the threshold into unforgiveness. Crossing this bridge of pardon burns it down. It is passing into a point from which there is no return. So, I encourage you to command your attention to the reading of God's Word now. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Please follow along. This is the holy and authoritative Word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man, <clears throat> who was blind and mute, was brought to him, being Jesus, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age 
or in the age to come. Trust the Lord will bless now the preaching and the believing of his word. The religious leaders in Jesus' day had so inverted things in their souls that up was down, black was white, good was evil, and the holiest man who had ever lived was accused by them of being empowered by the prince of demons. I have four points for us today to work through this passage. Four points. And the first is the amazement. The amazement. In verse 22... We have a demon-oppressed man who's blind and mute. He's brought to Jesus. He's healed by Jesus. And by this point in our study of the gospel, this does not surprise us. This is not shocking to us. Jesus has been healing people left and right. Back in verse 15, we looked at last week, uh, we read, And many followed him, and he healed them all. This was the business Jesus was about. And here in verse 22, we see God's servant mercifully, mightily at work again, because a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus healed the man so that in verse 22, we're told, he spoke and saw. So it was a complete healing. Jesus delivered the man from a demon that was causing these infirmities, and it was a complete deliverance. It was a complete healing. Though we should note the highlight here, the instance here, this is not just a healing, but this is a healing and a deliverance. And this gives an indication of the power of Satan, that he does cause infirmities, that he does have the ability to make one sick. So we want to note the power of Satan here because we'll be returning to that theme in just a minute. But we're told Jesus healed the man so completely that he spoke and saw, and verse 23 says, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So here is the amazement. This is the amazement, but notice it is not the man who was healed, but it was in fact the healer. It is not the man that can now see and speak. It is the man who enabled him to see and speak. It is not the man who was delivered, but it is the man who did the delivering. What was most spectacular to them was Jesus. This word Matthew uses for amazement here, it's a very strong word. It means to be beside yourself with astonishment. Uh, We might translate it today in our own vernacular. They were blown away. There is awe in their emotions here. They are in wonder, and there is even an interest in them. All the people were amazed. They just could not get over it. They could not get past this. It was simply incredible to them, and they started to ask each other, can this be the son of David? So here we have a messianic title, Son of David. It comes from 2 Samuel 7.13, where God promised to raise up a son of David who would have an everlasting kingdom. So Son of David became a Messianic title. Later in the Gospel, we'll see when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that people will welcome him like a king, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. So Son of David is a Messianic title that the people are going to give to Jesus. They will give it to Jesus. They're not ready to give it to him yet, but they're coming around. They're not quite convinced yet, but they're coming towards convincing. And that's what the Greek in verse 23, 23 suggests. The question here doesn't necessarily expect an answer, but it remains open to a yes. So you could almost translate it like this. This can't be the son of David, can it? This can't be the son of David, can it? It was hard to argue with Jesus' power. It was awesome to behold. And so the people are beginning to wonder, is this Messiah... And it's worth pausing here and reflecting that that might describe some of you here today. Maybe you grew up in this church or a church. Maybe you came here by invitation of a friend or family member and you've been attending for a while. And what has always stuck out to you are the people of this church. You came in, you thought, well, these people are nice, but they're a little weird, but they're mostly nice, and so I'll hang around. And you hung around with us for a little while now and you have confirmed we are nice, a little weird, but mostly nice. And so that intrigues you, and you've liked it, you've stuck around with it, you've connected, you've maybe made some friends, but the longer you've been around, the more and more we have faded to the background and Jesus has come to the forefront. The longer you've been around, the less you're thinking about what church is like and the more you're thinking about what Christ is like. 
The longer you're being around, the less you're assuming, well, this seems pretty good, and the more you're thinking, that guy, Jesus, might be amazing. And if that's you, I want to tell you, you are on the threshold of salvation. If that's you, I want to tell you, the Spirit of God is at work in your life. If that's you, I want to tell you, you're almost there. And maybe you are there. Come to Jesus. He is amazing. And we're going to see more of his amazement in this passage. In this passage, though, the people were amazed by Jesus. They were really getting interested in him, but their amazement led to the accusation. Point number two, the accusation. Verse 24 tells us, When the Pharisees heard it, their amazement and their question, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So here is the accusation. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And I want you to notice in verse 25, let's put this scene together a little bit here. Verse 25, we read that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. It's not the same as saying he heard their words. So the idea here is that Jesus is up front doing miracles, teaching, whatever. He's doing his thing up front, and the Pharisees are in the crowd. The Pharisees are, it's like Jesus was up here, and the Pharisees are in the back, making their way around, spreading this poison among the people's thinking, this is not done by God, this is done by Beelzebub. What you're seeing is the power of Satan at work through this man. They are in the crowd, spreading this lie among the crowd. They're not confronting Jesus to his face. Instead, they're back in the background, poisoning the people, saying he only does this by the power of Beelzebul. Now, here's something else to note as well. Here's something else to think about as well. Something else to note in this passage is that Jesus' enemies did not deny that he wielded supernatural power. There are people in this day who want to say that Jesus is an incredible teacher, that Jesus is a really good man. Jesus is a moral man, but nothing more. They say there was nothing supernatural about him, but that's not what Jesus said about himself. That's not what Jesus' friends said about him, and that's not even what Jesus' enemies said about him. There is just no denying that Jesus wielded supernatural power. Even the Pharisees conceded this point. But what they did not attribute to him was the power of God. What they attributed to him, what they accused him of, was the power of Satan. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So who is Beelzebul? The short answer is, that is Satan. Uh, you may have known from your Old Testament studies, the god Baal, the idol Baal. Uh, Baal means Lord, Zeobul means high, and so together they are Lord of the Heights, or Baal the Exalted One, and this became a reference to Satan. It became a Jewish way of referring to Satan, and so Jesus makes that clearer when he says, Beelzebul, the Prince of Demons, or not Satan, the Pharisees, Beelzebul, the Prince of Demons. Uh, interestingly, in Mark's account of this, in the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, he says that they accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. So it's a double accusation, really. It's, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and it's by the power of Beelzebul that he casts out demons. And this became a common objection uh, by Jews to Jesus in the first century. Uh, we have this in history, that Jesus used black magic that Jesus used, somehow he channeled demonic power, that he conjured forces of dark to do his bidding, and that's what these Pharisees are accusing of him here. This is their accusation that Jesus was not empowered by the Spirit of God, but by the Prince of Demons, which led then, point number three, the answer. Point number three, the answer. And some of you are thinking, man, Jesus, or Jesus is just like clocking along here. We're at two out of four. We're going to be done super quick. Um, those are our guests. Uh, that's nice that you would think that about us and me, but everyone else here can tell you that ain't going to happen. <sighs> he can make a, a, a short point and go really long, and I'm about to do it. So in verses 25 through 30, Jesus answers the accusations against him. Knowing their thoughts, he steps forward, and he calls out and challenges his accusers. First, he says, their accusation is illogical. First, he says, their accusation is illogical. Verses 25 and 26. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. 
And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, Satan is not going to work against himself by exercising demons who are part of his attempt to control people and control this world. It's illogical. That makes no sense. That's Jesus' first answer. Jesus' second answer, he says, first, they're illogical, but he says it's also inconsistent. These guys are inconsistent. Um, Verses 27 and 28. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus is saying, if casting out demons were a work of Satan, then why aren't you criticizing your own followers who cast out demons? Jesus' point is, you're inconsistent, you're biased. And let your own exorcists judge you. They'll tell you where my power comes from. Jesus points out they are illogical and inconsistent, and then he makes three undeniable conclusions. He makes three undeniable conclusions. He silences his accusers, and then he shows the crowd the light of the truth by saying first, or his first conclusion, his first undeniable conclusion, is if Jesus' power um, doesn't come from Satan, then it must come from God. If it doesn't come from Satan, it must come from God. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus is not casting out demons by the power of Satan, then there's only one other possibility. He is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, which means the kingdom of God has come upon them, which means the king is here, which means Jesus is the Messiah first undeniable conclusion. Second, this leads to a second undeniable conclusion. The one stronger than Satan is here. The one stronger than Satan is here. Verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. The second undeniable conclusion from Jesus' deliverance ministry is that one stronger than Satan is here. And I want to spend a few extra minutes on this one because this is a significant passage in considering the power of Satan in this world. We need to understand what the Bible teaches here. So let me take you back to Luke chapter 4. And I have all these texts on the overhead for you. Luke chapter 4, this is where Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And in verses 5 and 6, there's something important we need to see here. We read, And the devil took him, being Jesus, up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now here we see the devil offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. So this shows us something of how much authority he has over this world. But notice this as well. He is not the ultimate authority in the world because he admits in verse 6, it has been delivered to me. So Satan is not the ultimate authority in this world. God is. God is in control, and yet in his sovereignty, God considered it wise and right as part of his curse on the world after the fall of Adam and Eve to give Satan huge amount of power in this world. Huge power, real power, but not absolute power. God is in control, God remains in control, and we see this again in Job's life, right? Job chapter 1, Satan must come to God and ask his permission to afflict Job, and he can afflict Job when God's in permission, but only as far as God allows him to go. Because God is in control. So Satan does have absolute power, or absolute power, but he does not... Sorry, that's not right. Satan does not have absolute power, but he does have real power. He has evil sway in this world, and his evil sway is vast and terrible. So here are some key passages in this regard. 1 John 5:19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2:1 through 2. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this world, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. John 14.30, this is on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is coming. Scripture tells us, through passages like this, that Satan has a vast and terrible sway over this world. He has real power. And yet, the Bible also teaches us that in Christ's life, in Christ's death, and in Christ's resurrection, the decisive blow against Satan has been struck. So, as Satan comes against Jesus in his final hours, John 12, 31, Jesus says, I love this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In John 16, 11, Jesus says, the ruler of this world is judged. And when the chief priest and the officers of the temple come to arrest Jesus in the garden, his answer to them in Luke twenty two fifty three 53 is an ex- explanation of his sovereignty, really. He says to them, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, this is your hour. This is Satan's hour. This is the hour of the power of darkness, but it is only an hour. It is only a short time until I bring it to its end. And then most, important, most importantly, in this regard, uh, in regard to Jesus' defeat of Satan, is probably the passage Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Amen. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Amen. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what was the effect? What was the result? What happened out of all this? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by what? Triumphing over them in him. The cross of Jesus Christ marks the decisive defeat of demonic powers. And it's because it's there that Satan's greatest power against us is taken away from him. It's there that he is disarmed from the power of accusing us. Revelation 12.10 says that he is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren. The very name devil means accuser. This is Satan's greatest power because it can damn us to hell. He accuses us of our sin. He accuses us of our guilt. But on the cross, he was stripped of this power to accuse Christians before God. Our great record of debt was nailed to the cross so that as the old hymn proclaims, I bear it no more. Satan's greatest and deadliest weapon has been taken from him so that even though he still has power in this world, he is a defeated foe. Jesus has already dealt the decisive blow. I just love the picture of Satan before God with kind of his, you know, like folder in hand saying, okay, I'm here to accuse, you know, put in your name. Let me open up my folder. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I had something on them. I'm, I'm sure somewhere there was, I remember there was something. Ab- no more. No more. Jesus has borne it and it is no more. So that now... We can say, truly, one stronger than Satan is here. So that now we can say, as 1 John 4, 4 assures us, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Friends, the time for fear has passed. Jesus says in our passage that he has already bound Satan. He has already tied him up. Satan is on a leash and Jesus is plundering his house. Again, this is not to say that he does not still wield vast and terrible power in this world. A dog on a leash can 
still bite, and so we acknowledge as much. And yet, Revelation 20 tells us that in the binding of Satan, there is also this added benefit. He is not able, verse 3, Revelation 20, so that he might not be able to deceive the nations any longer. Again, this does not mean that Satan cannot do any harm while he is bound. He can. But it does mean what it says. Satan no longer has the power to deceive the nations like he did in ancient times. So just think about it. Just think about the Old Testament times. The nations were kept in darkness about the truth of God. Only Israel had light in all the world. Only Israel had the revelation of God. It was a dark place. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, referring of such times, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because now all people everywhere can have the light. In ancient times, Satan had the power to keep the nations in the dark regarding God. But Jesus came and bound that strong man. He tied him up. He is plundering his house. He's starting to free people from Satan's chains. He's put the old master in chains. He sets the prisoners free. And in Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me. You go and make disciples of, of the nations. You are the light of the world now. You get out there. You get out there, and Jesus assures us in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell, hell will not prevail. They will not be able to withstand the advance of his church so that we can sing what we sang earlier, and the church of Christ was born, then the spirit lit the flame. Now the gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. One stronger than Satan has come. And he's the one we serve. This leads finally to Jesus' third undeniable conclusion. There can be no neutrality with Jesus. In the cosmic war between Satan and Jesus, there can be no neutrality. As one commentator put it, there are no Switzerlands in this war. Verse 30, whoever is not with me, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Everyone has to make a, point, uh, a decision about Jesus. And not deciding about Jesus is deciding about Jesus. You're either with him or against him. As C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus left us no other option. He did not intend to. And so you must choose this day whose side are you on? Are you with Jesus or against him? This leads to point number four, the anathema. The anathema. Now Jesus begins verse 31 saying, therefore I tell you, and I think in our English Standard Version, that's just a little, it's a little easy to read right over. I like the King James a little better. Wherefore I say unto you. That gets my attention a little more. Wherefore I say unto you. The meaning here is something like Jesus saying, by my word I tell you this. So this is the kind of statement that whatever ripples are going through the crowd because of what Jesus has just been saying... This is the moment when he's standing before them and he says, by my word, I tell you this. This is when everyone gets quiet. Because what he's about to say is even more significant. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I we're going to need to get to the blasphemy against the Spirit here and speak about this, but let's not rush past the incredibly good news in verse 31. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. 
man, do not rush past verses like that. You don't have to underline the rest of this verse if you don't want to. But that's one, that's a, you can underline that phrase right there. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin. Every sin. Our God is a forgiving God. Okay, detour for a minute. I've been meditating on Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. In it we read familiar verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a very familiar passage to many of us. It's very familiar, and most of us apply it like this. We see God allow something to happen in life. We see God permitting something to happen in our life that doesn't make sense to us. Uh, You know, We've suffered, and then we have to suffer some more. And we think, wow, I would not have done it like this. My ways are not God's ways. My thoughts are not God's. I I don't understand what he's doing, but I trust that he knows. I trust that he understands. Or we see something happen to somebody else. They suffered this, they suffered this, and now this happens. Oh, my goodness, my ways are not God's ways. Like, I just would not have done that to them, but I guess God knows what he's doing. I trust him. I believe he sees so much more. That's how most of us apply this passage, and yet that's not what the passage means means. This is one of those passages that we take out of context to use, and it's not completely wrong how we use it, but it's not entirely what it's intended to do. The verses before it read this, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will, I love this phrase, abundantly pardon. Not just pardon, abundantly pardon. So this is saying, if a wicked and unrighteous man forsakes his way, what will our high and transcendent God do? He will have compassion on him. If a vile man returns to his father in heaven, like the prodigal son returned to his dad, what will this high and lofty one do, whose ways are not like our ways? What will he do? He will abundantly pardon. Why? Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are his ways our ways. You see what he's saying here? We are the ones who do not forgive. We are the ones who do not have mercy on each other. We are the ones who, when our kids apologize for that sin that they did again, or when our spouse apologizes for sinning against us in that same way again, we are the ones who are slow to forgive. We are the ones hesitant to pardon. We are the ones not eager to make it right because we want to make them pay. But God is not like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He will not forsake the wicked who turn to him. The unrighteous he will abundantly pardon. And so Jesus is tapping into this truth about God, this truth about himself in our passage, and he's saying, every sin will be forgiven. (laughs) That's incredible. Jesus, you mean murder? Even murder. Jesus, you mean adultery? Even adultery. Jesus, do you mean if I deny you under persecution? Even denial under persecution. Every sin will be forgiven. Every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. Every blasphemy. The blasphemy means to to speak irreverently about God. It means to speak derisively about God. It's slamming the door and shouting, I hate you, God. It's accusing God in heart or with words, you don't care. You are not good. It's casually taking, or in anger taking, the Lord's name in vain. All of that is blasphemy. And who of us here aren't guilty of any of it? And the good news is Jesus promises, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. Yes, he even clarifies in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You can deny Jesus and be forgiven. You can reject Jesus and be forgiven. You can speak against Jesus and be forgiven. 
In Mark chapter three, he says you can blaspheme Jesus and be forgiven. You can speak derisively about Jesus and be forgiven. But, Jesus says in verse 31, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And in verse 32, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So finally we come to this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unpardonable sin, this unforgivable sin, what Mark calls the eternal sin. And to understand exactly what this sin is and why it is unforgivable, I want to answer three questions. First, first, why is the Holy Spirit named here? Why the Holy Spirit? Jesus says blasphemy against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but not against the Holy Spirit? Why can blasphemy against Jesus be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So here's my answer to that. I think it's because of the unique and decisive role that the Holy Spirit plays in testifying to who Jesus is. I think it's because of the unique and decisive role the Holy Spirit plays in testifying to who Jesus is. It's the Spirit who opens our eyes. It's the Spirit who brings conviction. It's the Spirit who leads us to Jesus. So if we blaspheme or speak against Jesus, well, there's still hope. Because God, by His Spirit, might humble us and bring us to repentance. But if we see the Spirit's work, if we experience it, if in Hebrews chapter 6 it says, if you taste of it, and yet you reject and you repudiate or you slander against it, then here's, you are shutting yourself off from the only one who can bring you to repentance. So this is, how I, this is the analogy that came to my mind um, to try to help explain this. Why can you be forgiven for Jesus but not the Holy Spirit? So imagine that someone you love, someone you know, someone in your family... Uh, is in a horrible house fire. And they're just burnt horribly. Right? So badly, you know, so injured, that if you were in the hospital and you walked by them, you, do, you wouldn't even recognize them. So disfigured. You, you just walked right past, you didn't even notice. I think that, that would grieve your loved one, they would be sad about it, but I think, I think they could understand they, can, they look in the mirror, they can, I understand why you didn't see me. I forgive you. For, I can forgive you for that. But if that same loved one told you something that only you and them shared, so they're burnt, they're disfigured, you can't really reckon, is that you? And they say, do you remember the time when we went and did this or when you told me this? And you do. But you say, you can't be my spouse. You can't. You can't be. You can't be my kid. That's like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's making known to you. You're seeing. You're understanding. But you can't accept that. You can't receive that. That's why I think Jesus refers to blasphemy against the Spirit. The Pharisees were not in the dark. They saw the miracles Jesus performed. They heard his teaching. They understood that he was supernatural. And they knew the scriptures. They knew all the messianic signs. So they saw, they heard, they understood, but still they rejected. They saw the work of the Spirit testifying to who Jesus was, but they repudiated him. They attributed his work to that of the devil. And so there is no forgiveness because there's no one else in the universe who can lead them to repentance. So to define this sin, I'd say it like this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the persistent and unrepentant rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit and His message concerning Jesus Christ. 
Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the persistent and unrepentant rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus Christ. It's willful, conscious, unrepentant rejection of the Holy Spirit's message and testimony regarding Jesus Christ. And in this, I think it's a little bit different than just plain unbelief. It's not just like, I didn't know, or I heard a little bit, but I never really understood, I never really got it. This is a tasting of, this is a knowledge of, this is an experience of, and still rejecting. So, number two then, question number two is, why is this sin unforgivable? Why is this sin unforgivable? Some claim that it puts you outside the reach of God's forgiveness. It's just, it's a sin too far. Forgiveness can't extend that far. But I don't think that's the right way to think or say it because I don't think the blood of Christ is insufficient to cover any sin. I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's like, well, Jesus is innocent enough for everything but that to be our, our substitute. You know, Jesus is powerful enough except for that one. You know, God's forgiveness extends infinitely far except not that infinitely far you know like i don't think there's a deficiency in the godhead to cover the sin in that sense no in verse 31 just to hint back at this blasphemy jesus says blasphemy against the spirit he doesn't say cannot be forgiven he says will not be forgiven and the reason the sin will not be forgiven i believe is because it will not be repented of the person who commits it will not repent of it and this is where I think some of you, especially with a tender conscience, may need to hear this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not an accidental, impulsive, unguarded slip of the tongue or subconscious thought. Blasphemy against the Spirit is not saying some, it's not some angry outburst behind a slammed door. It's not an act like that. It's not the act of saying, I hate you, Holy Spirit. By telling you that, I did not just somehow curse myself. It's not the sometimes intrusive and sometimes impulsive thoughts some have about God that are defiling. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rather the settled, chosen defiance. It is the sober, decisive, deliberate rejection of Jesus despite the knowledge you have and in the, in the face of the Spirit's clear, testifying work. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a hardening of the heart where the concrete sets. And this is exactly what we see with the Pharisees here. So this is reading the passage in its context. Remember, they had rejected him again and again and again. So what makes this instant different? What makes this rejection different than the others? Well, you could say, well, it was that they accused him of being demonized. But no, they have made this accusation on many occasions before. We have already seen it in Matthew 9, 34, in Matthew 10, 25. If you go over to John's gospel, it's in John 7, 20, John 8, 48, John 8, 52, John 10, 10. And in Matthew, or Mark's account, chapter 3, verse 30, he writes, For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It's the imperfect tense indicating this is something they repeatedly said of Jesus. So the point is, on numerous occasions, Jesus' enemies had accused him of being demonized. And thus the anathema Jesus announces in our passage comes after extended, willful, and wide-eyed repetition of the egregious slander. Here's my point. What makes this one different than any of the others? This instance where Jesus... We don't know the difference. They had done this before. We don't know the difference, but there is a line that is crossed. There is a point where Jesus says, you've hardened yourself so much that you'll never go back. And that is why the sin becomes un unforgivable. Number three then, last one. So what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this passage? What are we supposed to go home and think about with this passage? We don't want it to just be an academic thing. Okay, well, now I have categories and definitions and some scriptures to think about regarding this, and so now I can... No, no. What do we do with this passage? In the first place, it ought to sober us. In the first place, it ought to sober us. 
Jesus means this to be, and it needs to be, sobering for us all. The New Testament shows us, in places like this one and others, how close one can come to the kingdom so that one is seeing, hearing, tasting, understanding, experiencing how close we can come to the kingdom and still end up rejecting it. And that is unforgivable. That is unpardonable. Friends, let me exhort you. We have a high view of God. We have a vast view of His love, the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, the length of God's love for us. We have a high view of God, a great view of His love. But don't make Him so safe and sentimental, so meek and mild. Yes, I realize I just gave you a book on gentle and lowly. So Jesus is those things. I want you to read that book. He is that, but He is not only that. It's amazing how in this passage, there are 11 and 12, chapter 11 and 12, there's these like backs and forths of like gentle and lowly, able to give you rest, and these woes to you and unforgivable sins. Jesus is both lion and lamb, a paradox brought together perfectly in him. And so we want to make sure that we are not making God so safe and sentimental that we fail to feel the terror of being utterly forsaken by God. Listen, we saw this with the Pharisees. They rejected Jesus again and again. They accused him of being demonized again and again. What made this time different? What made Jesus speak to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit this time? We don't know. We don't know, and that's the point. We don't know where the line is. When I look back at at my own testimony, when I look back at my own salvation, I shudder to think how close I might have gotten to that point of no return. Like maybe I was a footstep away. I had knowledge, I had experience, I knew, and I rejected And if I had crossed it, there would have been no forgiveness for me. But God in His mercy restrained me, and God in His mercy has restrained many of you, but many others will realize too late that they have gone too far. So make sure you are with Christ. And young people, kids, I feel this especially for you. Parents, adults, don't you also? Don't we, kids, we feel this for you. If you were raised in this church, listen, the Puritans would say, this is something you can think about. Children, you can think about this. The Puritans would say, the same sun, hot, glowing, beautiful sun, the same sun that softens butter like butter that you put on your bread. It softens butter, but it also hardens clay. And what they meant by that was you can hear the Bible taught all the time, and you can either soften under it like butter, or you can harden yourself under it like clay. It's a fearful thing to reject the living God. And you can't know when you've passed the point of no return. You don't know when you've crossed the bridge and burnt it down. So this passage should sober us and it should make us run to Jesus. It should make us flee to Jesus. You make us want to shelter in the salvation Jesus provides. Just again, marvel at Jesus' words that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Because there's not an example in Scripture of someone coming to God in humble and genuine repentance and being denied by Him. So let us marvel at God's vast and forgiving love. Truly His thoughts are not our thoughts. Truly His ways are not our ways. He's so patient with the wicked. He's so compassionate with sinners. He will abundantly pardon. So let us run to Him and find salvation from our sins. And then just in conclusion, let me share this with everybody. I think that there is an entailment for us all here. 
Christians have traditionally realized that some of our most important ethical teachings are implications of the Bible's commands and prohibitions. Meaning, in this passage, uh, in this passage, we are commanded by Jesus in the strongest terms not to deny him and not to oppose his work. Which, by implication, means we are to give ourselves wholly to him and give ourselves wholly to his work. We must make use of every means and every moment to know Jesus Christ better and to make him known to our parents and our siblings, to our friends and our coworkers, to our neighbors and the nations. We must be about telling them the truth of God's wonderful saving work in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. By implication, whoever is with me is for me. So let us, by the grace of God, resolved to be with Jesus Christ, to be with Jesus and to be for Jesus and to work to make Jesus known that all the world might repent and be saved. May the Lord help us make that come true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, This word is a sobering word, and yet we find that even your rebuking words, even your sobering words, even your disciplining words are the grace of God to us. You discipline who you love because you treat us as sons. And so we thank you for that. I pray, God, that you would help us to be humbled under it. I pray that you would give us a healthy fear of the Lord. I pray that you would give the gift of repentance and that you would give saving faith to all those here today who have heard this and wonder how close they are to the line but are desiring to be saved. Save them, Lord. I pray that you would keep all of our children, all of our young people, from trying to reject you and cross that line. I pray that you would also help us, empower us to know you more, to delight in you more, to know the vast height, depth, breadth, and width of your love. And I pray you would empower us to make you known. Fill us with all boldness. Give us your spirit, we pray. We want to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, preaching peace to this world. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We invite you to stand now. We respond to the